Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? Welcome back to Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast. And for the first time ever, we get to welcome back somebody to Off the Podium, an Olympics Jared's podcast. Jared's back, is he? Jared's back. Uh, I, you know, I, I was going to correct myself. I mean, we, we do welcome back Ben and Colin frequently. Every once in a while, Jared. But I, I guess of important people, we get to welcome back uh, our first ever guest, which is uh, such a pleasure. Uh, you know, we interviewed... Evan Dunphy, who's our guest today, Olympic now bronze medalist in race walking. We interviewed him all the way back in Rio. And uh, I, I didn't even realize it was our first interview ever. Uh, I think we did uh, a string of interviews all within a couple of weeks there. But Evan was, you, you confirmed it, our first interview ever. And now 160 episodes later, somewhere around there, five years, somewhere around there later, Evan Dunphy gets to become our first ever return guest. And I feel like we should go back and amend the original interview with like a James Bond thing. Evan Dunphy will return in episode number 160. Uh, Which is great it's interesting, to back. You, you heard the original interview too. Yeah. I, I remember when you interviewed him, I, I like, you know, not going into all the details. I think we did a bit on our recent hundredth episode, but it's, um, I say recent, that was like 70 odd episodes ago, Ben. Uh, but I think we kind of touched on the fact that it was never really a let's definitely do interviews. I mean, it was a nice thought, but like, I mean, the show was started kind of in a weird way and blah, 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 did Rio. And then all of a sudden it was like, hey, we should try and get some guys on the show. And you got Evan on basically straight away. And I remember listening to it vividly. I was in the gym and listening to it and thoroughly enjoying it and really kind of getting, you know, into Evan's story. So, yeah, and we, we always we always offer every guest who comes on the show, like we say, hey, we'll get you back on, we'll get you back on. And clearly because they don't really do well after being on the show because we jinx them, uh, we don't often get them <laughs> back on the show, but this is an anomaly. And we don't even mention this in this interview, I believe, that we, we don't even say like, hey... Good to see that you won a medal. Um, nobody <laughs> else, at least that I'm on a show with wins well, a medal. So. I was going to say, let's for all the listeners, <laughs> the people who have been listening at least uh, since just before Tokyo, obviously the off the podium curse was a very big deal for a long time. We discovered during it that the curse was actually not off the podium. It was just Ben. Yeah. The real reason My we won bronze done- medal versus all your other medals. <laughs> so that's, and then it was in a relay. No Australian. I'm still stuck with the no Australians won a medal since coming on this show. <laughs> so, really, the real reason that Evan Dunphy's back on the show here is so that Ben can piggyback and say, yeah. uh, you know what? I- I've interviewed an Olympic medalist. The curse of Ben is over now. So <laughs> let's hope we'll it's do, over. We'll do an episode eventually where I'll compare our medalist versus medalist. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm leading the medal tally here and off the podium in terms of who we've interviewed. So far, I would, so the amount you've done in the last couple of months, I'm sure you are. But uh, <laughs> uh, without further ado, let's get to it right now. Returning to the show, the great race walker, the great advocate of his sport, the great bronze medalist, Evan Dunn. Well, 
Well, if you've been with us from the beginning, you know, about five years ago, we started this little podcast and uh, about 19 episodes in, we decided let's start talking to athletes. Uh, it might work out. And uh, believe it or not, the first person we ever talked to was a little race walker named Evan Dunphy. And now 160 episodes later, we have our first ever return guest on Off the Podium. Started out as number one, number one in another category. Uh, forget about an Olympic medal. <laughs> He's now the first ever return guest, uh, but he also has the Olympic medal go along with it. Uh, we have the Olympic bronze medalist in the race walk, Evan Dunphy, returning. Evan, thanks so much for returning to Off the Podium. I've never had to say that before. Oh, thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. I mean, it's been so much as so much has changed. It seems like a lifetime ago now. I mean, the extra year obviously adds on to that, but I mean, four years is a long time in between Olympics anyways. But uh, I mean, the last time we talked to you, it was right after Tokyo. And now we've flashed forward and you're, you're or sorry, not, last time we're talking about us after Sydney. What's a correction there? Yeah. Rio, Colin, Rio. We <laughs> did 160 episodes in the last three weeks, but not Rio. <laughs> Sydney, Rio, one of those games back there. <laughs> uh, but uh, now flash forward to Tokyo. I mean, you're a bronze medalist. You know, when you were sort of wrapping up and, recovering from Rio uh, was the thought in your mind, you know, Tokyo's next. And did you think that you would be able to improve your result and end up in that bronze position? Yeah. Track and field, like athletics is so, at least, at least in my experience, it's so different. Like I, you finish up the Olympics and, you know, everyone outside of the world of sport is telling you about, you know, four years from now, four years from now, but in your own mind, you're like, well, no, we have like a world championship next year. Um, it's, you know, so, so even, you know, coming off the back of, of Rio, Tokyo felt so far away. It was, you know, a few world championships, a few world uh, uh, race walking championships away. And uh, it was certainly something that I knew I was going to be heading towards. But now when I look back on it, you know, we actually had to, we had to fight to save our event in 2017 when, uh, you know, we almost didn't get a 50 K in, in Tokyo and um, it, the ups and downs of coming off the fourth place from, from Rio. And then thinking I was in that, in that echelon of fighting for medals and then going and completely screwing up my next two world championships. And, and then thinking like, okay, well maybe I'm not a medalist. I'll, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll race for eighth and then coming away with a bronze medal in Doha with that strategy. And just think, Oh, well, hell, I don't know anymore. <laughs> I want to go out there and race and, and see what happens. And, um, you know, that was sort of the lesson I took from the, from the five years since, um, since Rio going to Tokyo, just like, uh, I got no idea. I'm just gonna go there and see what I can do. And haven't seen anybody else race for over a year. So who knows what other people are capable of. I'm just going to do my thing. And that yeah, worked out. I when I obviously wasn't on the interview back when Colin did it and I loved listening to it and kind of loved listening to the journey and everything that happened back in Rio, the emotions over everything that happened in that race. And one of yeah, my highlights clearly of Tokyo was seeing you able to get that bronze medal, Evan, because it, it almost seemed like it was just destiny. You just, you deserve that more. So some, I mean, everyone deserves a good result, but kind of after what happened in Rio, it was like, this is, this is justice. This is what, this is what you needed. This is what happened. I mean, when you're standing on, on the podium with that medal around your neck, do you, do you just take a moment to kind of go over that journey? Kind of, you know, just take a deep breath and go, okay, whew, now uh, people can stop asking me questions about Rio. I've got this bronze, uh, all that hard work's paid off. Uh, you know, now let's go on to the next fight to save the event for the, the next games. Yeah. It's so funny. You talk about like, Oh, it's, it feels like it must've been destiny and something like that. And you know, when I think back to that final two K of the race sitting in fifth in fifth place with two K to go, I really would have loved the positive framing in my mind of being like, no, like this medal is destiny. Like all that was in my head was first of all, 
Vieira, the, the Portuguese athlete, he's three seconds ahead of me. He beat me by three seconds at worlds in 2019. You can't lose this guy by three seconds again and managed to get ahead of, ahead of him with a kilometer to go. And then it was just like, Oh crap, Evan, you're in fourth again. Like you can't finish fourth again. And it was completely, you know, no sports psychologist is going to tell you this is the, you know, this is the framing that you should be giving yourself. But I was, you know, it, it was, and I reflect back on those last, you know, last eight minutes or so. I was very self-deprecating and just, you know, I would have loved to be like, come on, Evan, this is your destiny. Like you got to get this medal. It was just like, Oh, come on. Don't finish fourth again. That was, that was agonizing last time. You can't let that happen again. Um, so certainly that, I mean, that, that feeling that, that washed over me, uh, right away was one of, uh, of sort of contentment. I was just kind of like that, you know, that, that, that wave of whoo, all right, I did the thing, you know, the thing that I set out to do when I was 10 years old, I've done the thing. I, no one can ever take that away from me now. Uh, cool. Like it was just sort of, you know, brought me up to this, instead of having this level of euphoria, it kind of just brought me up to this like level of like, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but just this, this great feeling of everything feels worth it. Like everything I've done since I was 10 years old, like feels, feels like worth it. And I think even if I hadn't won the medal, I'd still have reflected back on that in the days and, and weeks after the race and, and came to that same conclusion. But I, I, I'm pretty hard on myself. I rarely have a race where I feel good. Like, I feel like I did everything I possibly could or, or that I didn't miss some sort of tactical move or, or, or something or other. And, um, usually that's right away. Like you cross the finish line and I'm just like, damn, should have done this better. And, and that certainly came in Tokyo, it's, you know, a couple hours after the race, it was like, ah, oh, crap. Could I have done better? Um, but you know, <laughs> that first hour, that, that very first hour after I crossed the finish line, I think for one of the first times ever, I didn't have that. I had just this feeling of like, Oh man. Yeah, I did it. Uh, which was really cool to have. And then staying on the podium, uh, the next day, cause our, our medal ceremony wasn't until the next, the next night, uh, they had to fly us back to Tokyo from Sapporo. And at that point in time, I, you know, as you said, reflected back on, okay, now we gotta go to fighting for, for, to get our event back. And, um, so for me, staying on the podium, the best, the best moment for me that I get to look back on is when I got handed my medal and my, um, flowers by two IOC executive board members. I got to look them in the eye and tell them that, you know, you made a horrible mistake getting rid of my event. And, um, that, you know, I, I feel, I feel like you should have to live with that decision. Um, wow. and, and to me, that was so powerful because I can yell on Twitter all day long, you know, <laughs> shout from the rooftops, <laughs> whatever, like it, no one's listening really. Um, but to get to say it to the decision makers face to face, um, you know, meant, just as much to me in this journey as, uh, as getting to put that medal around my neck. Yeah. And I think you said 2017 was when the talks first started. Cause I, I remember after Rio being really excited on, you know, this event's getting a lot of traction in Canada. People have a lot of interest because of you. And then it was maybe about a year, maybe a year and a half later when uh, I started seeing, I think you more than other athletes definitely were posting right away saying, Hey, this is in risk. We don't know what's happening here. Uh, do you remember how that all came about? Was it something where you, you kind of had the heads up beforehand. Did you know before Rio, maybe it's on the bubble or did it just completely come out of nowhere? Yeah, there was a really sketchy backdoor meeting with the um, IOC, or sorry, with the World Athletics, IAAF at the time, uh, race walking committee where Sebco, the, the president of, IW, of IAAF, World Athletics now, um, supposedly came into the room and, and, and 
put his hand down saying you need to get rid of the event and kind of the the race walking board members uh, or committee members kind of figured out some way to, to script, you know, take the event off the program from, for Tokyo. And, and this was all supposed to be, be done sort of behind closed doors and, and without any consultation and someone leaked it and, and we got a hold of it and, and we, we managed to kind of mobilize, uh, you know, the worldwide community of race walkers and, and our supporters and, and kind of managed to like stave off that attack. But, um, we knew it was only a matter of time. We knew that we were only delaying the inevitable, um, Tokyo was supposed to be, well, 2021 was supposed to be the last 50 K. So we kind of thought we'd maybe get one more world championships in, but, uh, but no, that wasn't, that wasn't to be the case. And, um, yeah, so it was, it's been a kind of a hard fought taking away some victories over the last couple of years, but knowing that this was always going to be the route that it ended up. And, um, you know, the, I've been a part of, uh, their pretend athlete um, engagements and, um, you know, basically just were there as, as window dressing to say, Oh, we consulted athletes and, um, didn't listen to a word we said and use the exact same template form letter that they had written up before our meetings, um, to submit after our meetings. And, uh, and so you get, you get pretty jaded by the whole thing, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, like what I can hang my hat on is the performance and the show that, that us 50k athletes put on and um you know it was once again a really exciting uh event and to be get to be a part of that was really cool canada had some really big viewership numbers from what i've heard um i've heard from so many people that told me they watched it and i was just like i still have a hard time believing that <laughs> um but you know if that's what i can look back on and say that's all i could do um yeah you know, i feel like i i I can hang my hat on that and, and, uh, and, and know that, that the effort was there, that we, we tried as hard as we could to save the event. The thing that baffles me about the removal of the 50Ks, that's the one event with, with the most history between the 50 and the 20, right? It goes back even further than, than the 20. So it's kind of, it's, it's interesting to me that that's the one that they're taking out. Is it, does it come down to the fact that they want to have like a 20 and a 20, just so it kind of, it's comparable between the men and women, then bring in the sort of the mixed one to kind of keep it neutral. I mean, why, why is it the 50 that's going and not the 20? You're right. Um, I mean, the 50s falls way more in line with what race walking's roots are, um, coming from pedestrianism, uh, you know, being six day races, being a, a, a test of endurance. Um, and the 50K being the longest foot race at the Olympics matched as well as possible that, that same sort of ideal of, uh, of, you know, of the ability to endure. Um, the 20K isn't the 20k is not the longest event in athletics it's it's a bit more of a sprint it doesn't have the same you know you don't have the same thing with athletes blowing up you know mismanaging their their energy usage and and all this other stuff you have athletes are going way faster so from a from, you know from a judging point of view it's a little bit more iffy you get more slow motion replays of athletes off the ground you get more people watching being like well this is stupid um you, know, you don't get that in the 50k people are people might say well this is stupid but these guys are crazy um, versus the 20K. You're like, well, this is stupid. These guys are running. Uh, so, you know, it, there's no good reason other than, you know, the IOC just wants to get rid of it. They don't like race walking. This is their first step in getting rid of race walking overall. They'll say that's because the event's too long, but they'll put four days of golf on, um, you know, they'll, <laughs> it's uh, none of their, 
rationales make sense. They'll say it's for gender equality. Um, we've been pushing for a women's 50 K for years. We even suggested a way that would take men off, you know, lower our quota for the men's race to give an equal quota to the women wouldn't add a single athlete to the overall quota for, for the Olympics for athletics. Um, and they still, they still said no. So, you know, any argument they presented has been very easily dismissed. Um, but you know, the, the IOC, um, the, the, the best thing they have at their disposal is their marketing and their PR and, and, and they know how to spin things. So, um, we're, we're never going to win that fight, unfortunately. Did you, did you get a sneaky chance during the closing ceremony to try and hunt down Thomas? Like you mentioned, you sort of had a few words on the phone, but you like, were you at the closing going, great, cool. I've got a bronze. Where the hell is Thomas? Where is he? I need to speak to him. I didn't. I did get a chance to, I cornered Seb Co in the, uh, the, the land, the airport lounge, um, nice. heading back from Tokyo and basically kind of looked at him and said, you know, Seb, like, I know that, you know, that I have to tell you this. <laughs> that was kind of the way it was framed. And he just kind of sat back and, and, uh, you know, like a good politician, he took his criticism in stride and, uh, and, and said the right things and, and all that. So that's, you know, I can appreciate that. Um, you know, I know it's, it, it falls on death, uh, death ear, deaf ears, but, um, you know, it's still, still meaningful for me to get to do it. It's like when I got to lay my shoulder into Justin Gatlin at world champs one year, uh, <laughs> I was walking, I was walking upstream and, and I saw him and I put myself in a position where I could brush shoulders with him and I spun off of him. It hurt my shoulder like hell. He probably didn't even feel it, but I felt good about myself. That's the main thing. I, I think, I think all of us have had that same dream. <laughs> I don't remember if it was on CBC, but I, I swear I've heard this in multiple places. You know, the, I think one of the funny things about uh, the, your event is that you end up competing in these games where there's nobody in the stands except for other athletes. And for possibly, let's hope not, but possibly the last time, you end up being able to draw a crowd. I mean, between race, walk, marathon, road race, you get the only authentic crowds in Tokyo. Man, how did that feel to you? I guess. For you, it must feel just like this is a regular event, but knowing how many other athletes were playing to empty venues and everything, and you get to do the the most long distance, most enduring race uh, in the entire Olympics, and you get real fans there in the the stands, the the sidelines, whatever it is. Uh, it, it's awesome for a whole number of reasons. I mean, just to have that support and, and Japan, you know, the people of Japan take to race walking pretty well. They love endurance stuff. They love kind of weird niche, uh, uh, strange stuff and, and race walking kicks both of those boxes. Right. So, um, so the Japanese have been always super supportive of the race walk. And, uh, and so we knew that being a free event, even if they were being told to stay away, that they were going to have a few, you know, a, a few thousand people show up. And so it was really awesome to, to have that support along the sidelines and, uh, you know, certainly knowing it was possibly the last one, it was, it was great, obviously to put on a good show. Um, surprising that Japanese didn't come away with any medals, uh, in the, in the 50k walk for sure. But, uh, but moreover, I think like the biggest thing for me, just another check mark for rationalizing why I do this, um, you know, over the last couple of years and especially, especially the last year or so I've, I've really come to terms with the fact that the Olympics aren't great. <laughs> you know, they're not, a a, a, a great, entity they cause a lot of damage um they leave behind a lot of um you know a, a lot of misery and and displacement and and debt and all the stuff that, that unequally affects um you know, lower income and minority people and and really had to come wrap my head around how i rationalize my position within the olympic movement and 
it's been made easier by the fact that the race walk is this free event that anyone can come and, and be three feet away from the athletes and, and, and feel the excitement, feel that, you know, I remember in 2012, I didn't make the games and I wasn't going to go. And I decided in the last day that I had to be there to support my teammates. So booked a flight, flew out the next morning. And, and a day later I was standing uh, in front of Buckingham palace with a crate full of beers, drinking, you know, drinking in front, drinking in front of the queen, um, watching, watching my teammates, um, you know, achieve his dream. And I remember in that moment being right there of that action, just feeling what it meant to these athletes, like knowing full well that you know, this was their dream, this was their goals. And, and they worked really hard to, to achieve this. And, you know, for me, that was also my dream. So watching them compete, it was like, yeah, why not me? Why, why I'm not going to be on this side of the sidelines, um, uh, in four years time, but, but for other people showing up who maybe sports, not necessarily their dream, but they still see these athletes and they see how hard they've worked to achieve the, the thing that they wanted to achieve. And, and they walk away being like, well, I can do that thing that I want to do. You know, why not me? Why not me? And, um, so there's that element of it that, that, that we can have that impact on people. And then obviously we don't require any infrastructure. We require one kilometer of road to be closed off for half a day. Um, you know, it's, it's so that I think, you know, long, long story short is, is I think that was what was so meaningful about having stands, uh, fans there, um, for this last 50 K race is just another reminder of, of how I rationalize my position within, within the Olympic movement. It's interesting kind of hearing that take on things because your, your family's got a bit of history with the Olympics, Evan. I mean, your dad coached swimmers, I believe back in Munich, your, your great uncle competed in the marathon in 1912. I believe you do a bit of work at the the Richmond Olympic uh, Oval as well. I mean, it's kind of it seems like this is like a, a big connection there, sort of th- through your life. But it's interesting to kind of hear that sort of conflict that you sort of do have, sort of with the Olympics in general. Certainly, I, I think the like so by and large, like, the athletes, you know, the eleven thousand athletes, the the several thousand para athletes, like they're amazing. They go back in their home communities. They do a ton of good. Their role models, their, their coaches, their volunteers, they do, you know, they create so much value back home in, in their local, local communities. But, um, you know, the, the host cities, the, the destruction that's, that gets left by the IOC and they're kind of, you know, the rhetoric and, and, and dictatorship basically that is the IOC. It's, it's, it's hard to wrap its head around. And, um, you know, I, as much as my family has that connection, we also have that connection with, uh, you know, kind of not really liking the, that, that, that aspect of it. So in Munich in 72, when my dad was coaching, um, I don't think he'll mind me telling this story. Um, the, uh, the, so the COC had a fleet of cars for, for the coaches and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, officials to, to be available to themselves to use. And so my dad, got the keys to one of the cars and said, Oh sweet. Like, can the athletes use these? And they're like, no, he's like, okay, cool. And he, uh, he had a friend in Munich who had a garage. He took the car to the, took the car to the garage in Munich, parked the car, came back to the village, handed the keys to the team captain and said, here's where the car's parked. If any of you guys need it, go ahead. Um, so, you know, <laughs> even wow. looking back then, I, you kind of think like, Oh man, you know, you don't really want to be like your parents. And then, all of a sudden you realize that you're exactly like your parents and, <laughs> and, and my dad stealing a car from the COC to give to the athletes definitely feels on brand. <laughs> it was meant to happen. It was meant to be that way. Have you, there's a, there's a TV show in Australia in the lead up to the Sydney Olympics. It was called the games. And basically it was a parody 
of like the Sydney organizing committee and kind of every like I think you would really like it because it sort of it it parodies like corruption and things to do with the Olympics and it's it's hilarious. like the one of the funniest episodes they get there and they're they're preparing the athletics track and they basically get there and like yeah we've got a problem we've only been able to build it 94 meters not 100 meters and they're like do you not see the problem with this? I could go out there right now and break the world record in the 100 metres and I'm 52. Like, this, you know, people will notice this during the Olympics. We need to fix this. So it's very funny. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or tracked it down, but it's worth a watch. I'll have to track it down. I've watched the, the 2012 London um, BBC did a similar thing. I think it might have been BBC or Channel 4, but they did a similar sort of uh, parody show that was fantastic. So I will, I will hunt that down. I have kind of a two-part question uh, as far as the event in Tokyo goes. Uh, one is just comment on the heat because um, <laughs> you know, we kept hearing this is the hottest games ever and we're seeing events. Uh, uh, I know in the marathon they had like, you know, a record amount of people drop out. I mean, it must have been brutal, but especially doing an event as long as yours. Uh, and I, I, I'm pretty sure you were able to start, you know, what was it like 5, 5.30 in the morning? Uh, I, I just did a, a half marathon and the start time that I got was like 8.30 in the morning. I remember complaining to my wife saying, oh, it just been an hour earlier. So I'm sure that hour makes a difference, but how bad was the heat? Uh, whether it be at the beginning end, you know, in comparison, have you ever competed in an event that was as hot as that one? So Doha World Championships 2019 were, were insane. Uh, you know, nothing like I've ever experienced, nothing like anyone's ever experienced before for, for racing. Uh, we, we raced at 1130 at night, um, to avoid the hottest part of the day, but it was still like 30 degrees and 80% humidity <laughs> throughout wow. the race. And so tons of people dropped out because they weren't prepared for those conditions. Um, you know, my, myself and my teammates who, who were prepared for those conditions really well, did, did really well. Um, you know, I, I, I came home and, and stormed home to win a bronze medal at those world championships. My, my teammate from Sweden, uh, won a bronze medal as well. And, um, you know, we were just prepared. We knew that those were the conditions and we knew that Tokyo was going to be hot. So that's what we had been preparing for. And we've been following the science and we've been doing all that stuff. So that was October, early October, 2019, by November, 2019, the IOC was freaking out because all these people dropped out and, and they were terrified that their, the Olympics were going to, you know, be scenes of, of athletes collapsing, um, ignoring the fact that athletes collapse in cool conditions. It's just a product of pushing yourself to your limit. And a lot of athletes try to push themselves beyond their limit when they're on the biggest stage. And, um, when you go beyond your limits, sometimes you collapse anyways. Uh, so the, our, the race walks and the marathons got moved 800 kilometers north up to Sapporo, uh, which for those of us who had prepared for the heat in Doha and, and succeeded because of it, were pretty pissed off. Uh, we weren't, athletes weren't consulted. Um, <laughs> Sapporo wasn't consulted. So the, um, and, and world athletics wasn't consulted. The IOC in, you know, showing, showing what they do just unilaterally made this decision and then said everyone else has to fall in line. Um, so going into Tokyo, uh, going to the Olympics, that was kind of what we were working with was, okay, well, we're going to be 800 kilometers North. It's not going to be as hot. Um, so, you know, heat's not going to be as big a factor. Fast forward to race week, which you know, obviously we still went about preparing for, for as tough a conditions as possible because it's 2021 and you don't, you know, I don't believe, <laughs> don't believe anywhere is incapable of getting to be 35 degrees anymore. Um, but, uh, so race week comes and we're looking at the forecasts and, Oh, wouldn't you know it? The temperature on race day was going to be the exact same as Sapporo in Tokyo. 
Wow. So, uh, so that's, and that's what, that was the case. So yeah, it was a super hot day in Sapporo and, um, and I woke up with a huge smile on my face cause I knew that we were prepared for it. I knew that I raced the best in those types of conditions. And, uh, and certainly this time around more athletes were prepared for those conditions than they were in Doha. And I had a lot of athletes who actually came to me and said, thank you for being so open about what worked for you in Doha, because we basically just copied that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but certainly, I mean, the heat was a huge factor and, uh, it was also something that we knew for four years, this was going to be a factor and, and we followed the research and we did what science told us was the best thing to do. And, and pretty obviously succeeded because of that. So I, I long-winded way of saying that I don't buy the excuse that, that the conditions were harmful. They just needed to be adjusted to. And, um, you know, athletes who were in potential harm for it just didn't prepare for it well enough. And, um, that's like going into a, you know, a, a, a heavyweight boxing fight as someone who's 140 pounds, it's just stupid. <laughs> so, you know, I, yeah, I guess that's, yeah my feelings there. If that, if that, if there was any point in there, I don't know if there was, I kind of fell off, a uh, fell off on a tangent there. You're fitting very uh, well into this show. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that I noticed that uh, I think this, because the first time I was ever able to watch the race walk in its entirety, start to finish, uh, is how much fuel you guys are consuming throughout it. Uh, and I, can, can you give us kind of a ballpark figure of how much fluids you have to take and how many carbs, you know, how long of an interval in between before you have to refuel? Well, I, I can give you a ballpark figure. Annoyingly, I could have given you a pinpoint finger, uh, figure, but, um, one of the many knock on effects of COVID, they decided that they weren't going to retrieve our water bottles. Um, so normally I would have, you know, five or six bottles and I would just drink from them and, and we'd weigh them and we'd just, we'd get them back every lap. Um, this time around that was deemed to be unsafe for some reason. I don't really fully understand it. Um, so we had to have 25 different water bottles. Uh, wow. so, um, did my best to, to still follow my, my fueling plan and fill my bottles up to the level I needed to and drink everything and all that stuff. So, uh, I took in about 88 grams an hour of carbs, um, works out to be, about, uh, what is that? So 183, like about 350, 350 calories an hour. So wow, about 1300 calories, um, over the course of the race, drank about four liters of fluid, uh, and then probably poured another 90 to hundred liters of fluid on top of myself. <laughs> Just to put that in context, I'm, I've been keto for a while. I'm allowed to have 25 grams of carbs a day. Uh, so, <laughs> that's crazy yeah I've, I've i've been there uh it's not it's not fun when you're trying to train for for elite uh endurance performance imagine. i can tell you that <laughs> wow wow i wanted to quickly ask i i seem to remember during the interview you did with colin a few years ago you talked about your time to my home city of hobart being ridiculously hot when you competed can you compare doha and sapporo to the heat of hobart because I, I we're not a hot city evan this is rare for us to ever get that hot so i kind of want to hear the comparisons to hot hobart versus hot doha and sapporo i gotta go back and look at what it was on the day but i do remember it was like hobart's like hottest weekend on record um and we were all trying to qualify for the bunch of us trying to qualify for the for the olympics in london and it just went so horribly wrong um <laughs> but um but even then i think i it did not compare to uh you know to, to, to the humidity that we had in, in doha and and sapporo i mean that's that's what really kills you um just 
makes it that much harder for your body to sweat and, uh, and, and, and all that. So at least in, in Hobart, it was that dry heat where you were, you were roasting, um, but you were able to, to cool yourself off pretty, pretty well. If it's the weekend, I like, I remember would that been around like 2012, 20, well, it would have been before 2012. I'm guessing if it was for sort of that. Yeah. It would have been Feb, February, middle of February, 2012. It would have been. Yeah. So yeah. Cause we had, I think it got to about 43 and I remember that day and like God, anyone in Hobart remembers when it gets over 40. Cause it's just, it's such a rarity. <laughs> and I remember having CD cases in my car melt um, because I like, I don't know how good quality the CD cases were, but it was just, it was an odd weekend. It, it really was. And I didn't realize there was a race walking event on that. If I had known, I would have gone. Like I, it was, it was a lot of fun. We were like right downtown and, um, it was like a Friday, I think it was the Friday night. So it was, right. I think we raced at like four o'clock in the afternoon. So four or five o'clock in the afternoon. So just as, as people were kind of rocking up to start their, their Friday night out, they were stumbling across this race walk. And so we That's had a few guys. Away. Who, you would have been we, there. You would have been to go to the market the next morning too. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I, um, I vaguely remember that actually. Um, but we had a few guys who started, who'd clearly started their, uh, their, their Friday night a little bit earlier, <laughs> stumbling across, <laughs> stumbling upon the race walk, uh, already half cut. And, uh, that was entertaining. Ben, now's your chance to apologize for that. Come on. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I could, I could apologize a lot for Hobart, but we'd be here for a while, Colin. Come on. <laughs> uh, you know, when I when I saw your event, uh, especially leading towards the end, I believe it was after Mohamed, um, and, and I kept having flashes because Mohamed, uh, he he sort of was sitting around the same position. He's, you know, fifth, sixth, somewhere around there. And then he makes the sprint right at the end. And when I saw you do that, I'm like, oh, he's doing the same thing that Mohammed was doing. He was playing strategy or whatever. But then I heard interviews afterwards and I was thinking like, okay, this wasn't a strategy. This was literally, you've got nothing left to do. So was, was there a part of you where maybe you were holding out a little bit just so that, you know, I'll have a sprint with it? Or was this like, okay, I'm out of this if I don't do something and then you just really go for it? Yeah, I think being five seconds back with a K to go could have been strategy being 22 seconds back with a K to go was, uh, was desperation. <laughs> it was, um, annoyingly like, you know, it was a race where I, I wasn't able to give, you know, everything I had aerobically. Uh, every time I tried to put in a surge, my hamstring just was not having it, um, just kept cramping up. And so I kept having to back off. So I knew that I had more in the tank. I had another gear, um, if my hamstring would, would let me. And, but there's also part of me that knew that, okay, I can probably walk a kilometer on a torn hamstring. I probably can't walk five kilometers on a torn hamstring. So there was an element of with one K to go, it was kind of like, Hey, like, will my body let me go? And also an element of, I don't really care at this point. If I get a, if I cross the finish line with no hamstring left, whatever um at least i'll i'll still get across the finish line so um you know i guess there was strategy in in that regard of, of knowing you know the balance of knowing how far out i could be to to limp to limp home if i needed to um <laughs> but you know for the most part it was just like holy crap you have 1k left uh you know just see just see what you can do um you know i was uh in rio I was in fourth and, and made up an 18 second gap in the last 5k to, to pull even with Hiroki with a K to go. Um, in Doha, I was, you know, coming to the last 2k was in fourth 30 seconds down and, 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 you know, managed to, to pull back that, pull that lead back with a big sprint finish. So, you know, I, I know I'm an athlete who can have that big kick and, and just that my body let me do it. 
now that I look at it on paper and realize it was 22 seconds and that it wasn't until like 800 meters to go that Mark Tur actually started slowing down. I still don't know how it happened. I don't know. You know I'm not, not quite sure how that worked out, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm thankful that my body let me drop that last kilometer in like a 40409 or something like that. And, and for context, our average pace was 437. So about 30 seconds quicker than my average um, uh, for that last lap. And obviously, famously uh, in Rio, you know, you, you had that bump that uh, you decided not to contest and everything. And uh, I, I know you said earlier, you know, hey, had you not meddled in Tokyo, you still would have gone home happy or whatever. But uh, at any point, did you think to yourself, you know what, if anybody bumps me in these last hundred meters here, I'm contesting at this time? <laughs> You know, it's funny when in Doha, I was pretty much in the exact same spot of the race as I was in, in Rio when I moved into, when I moved into third, pay, third place. Uh, and I remember thinking at the time, I'm just going to, you know, I, in Rio, it was, I'm going to go past this athlete. I'm only, I want them to hear my breath. I want them to see how strong I am and feel me go by them to actually, you know, so it shatters them. It breaks them. That didn't work out so well. So, so in Doha, it was very much like, I'm going to pass this person very far away and, and not let them hear me coming, uh, was the strategy I had. And so I think, yeah, that clearly was a better strategy. So I, I, I definitely went, uh, in this race with, with the, I'm going to pass with lots of room to spare. Um, but a lot of people back home were worried that I was going to take myself out. Cause I guess on my last lap, when I came past the drinks table, I dropped my towel and, uh, and yeah. nearly, nearly biffed it on it. So, um, you know, again, I, uh, I don't remember that at the moment being as, as panicky as everyone back home seemed to think it was. Commentators but, sure made a big deal out of it. <laughs> it uh, I'd never be able to live it down if, if that had been what, what cracked me. <laughs> the towel, the, the towel incident, basically. The thing that I've loved watching, though, sort of through your social media and even just being on the other side of the world, obviously I'm not seeing it in the Canadian perspective, but just the reaction that people have had to your your medal win, Evan, and just all the, the fans that are obviously getting involved. And I'm sure Colin will talk a little bit more about the whole craft dinner aspect of things. But, I mean, has that surprise you i mean you you got a lot of reaction after rio but now you've got that medal you've kind of got you know this different type of reaction i mean how have you sort of found it coming back home and having all these people so excited to see your success there and come home with a bronze medal it's really really cool i i never i got into the sport for really selfish reasons i wanted to be you know i wanted to be the best athlete i could be i wanted to be the world champion in this weird little niche event that i had chosen to make my own and uh, for the longest time, it didn't really extend beyond that. Um, and then obviously I think Toronto in 2015 winning Pan Ams on home soil was really the first glimpse I had of, of this, you know, bigger than just me mentality. And, and the, the, the fact that, you know, I can, I have this platform and I can leverage that platform to do some good things. Uh, and then obviously Rio opened that door up, um, by, by, Mart by magnitudes of 10. Um, and, and then it's just having you know, the, the community that I've had online on, whether it be on Twitter or Instagram and people that sort of followed, followed me since Rio or, or that were following me before Rio. Um, I think just really do appreciate that I'm genuinely and unabashedly me <laughs> and have never tried to be anything else. And, um, and, and so I think the, you know, the, the, the combination of, of that, 
attitude or, or approaching it that way. And then also seeing the opportunities to make this about more than just myself and you know, get involved with people like kids sport, um, to, to give back to my community and to, to raise money and, and just use this platform. I think those have just kind of snowballed and built on each other. Uh, and, and, you know, definitely culminated in, in the craft inner deal, um, which then only acted to further give me a bigger platform and, 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 you know, just, keep, again, just that snowball falls further down the hill and gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. We have to talk about craft dinner. Cause it was, uh, I think it was the morning <laughs> of the opening ceremonies. I'm waiting for it to start. And I see the commercial air the first time, which if, if anybody hasn't seen it, try to look it up, but it's basically you walking while eating and very politely. Hello. <laughs> this guy. One of the great, I told him one of the greatest guys sent the video to Ben and our other co-host. Loved it. One of the greatest right. commercial, greatest commercials I've ever seen. Uh, but uh, I think there was so much more of a heavy presence with like major corporate sponsors with Tokyo compared to other games I've seen. But uh, I mean, this has to be huge. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily associate craft dinner uh, with Olympics necessarily, but to have a brand that big, I mean, how did this come about? Was it, was it something that they came to you? Or, uh, did the Olympic committee say, we want to spread some of these corporate sponsors around? Let's, Evan's a craft dinner guy, you know, it just matches their brand. <laughs> essentially, essentially it was just that. I mean, so craft craft is, is a, is a COC is a Canadian Olympic committee partner. So, you know, on uh, there, they have the ability and the, the leverage to use all the, the assets that other brands can't use. Um, but basically it came down to, I got, a, I got an email wanting to set up a call to chat to me. I was like, this feels like a joke. <laughs> like this is a, it's a really niche prank, but it still feels like a prank. Uh, and basically, you know, got on a call with these, with the, with the group and, and they basically said, Hey, look, like, I don't know. We think that race walking is pretty cool. Like we think it's, it's, it's different. Um, it's, 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 unique um but we think it has value and like more importantly like we think you as a race walker have value and i was kind of like holy crap like all i've been trying to do for my entire career is like convince people that i have value and that race walking has value and and you're now coming to me saying that you you you, you know you think i have value um it was so cool and and then just the fact that it was a genuine partnership right like i grew up eating craft dinner and hot dogs uh with my with my parents and yeah, as a poor university student um you know every, you know so many so many of us we grew up on craft dinner so um it's some it's not like um you know, it's not like anything we were doing was a lie where that was a big part of it for them. Like they went to the COC and got a, a basically a short list of athletes, I think. And basically what they said was like, well, we're going to know if it's not changing, like we're going to know if we open up their Instagram and it's just hundreds of pictures of salads that this isn't going to work. <laughs> and then it was kind of like, Oh, okay, well you, <laughs> that's what you're looking for. Like half my Instagram story feed is meat and donuts. So uh, I think we're going to be okay here. <laughs> And I mean, some of the things they've done even since the Olympics, I mean, oftentimes you see these partnerships end once the games are over, but uh, what was that massive donation thing they did? Like 35,000 boxes donated. What was that? Yeah. So uh, what was so cool is, is immediately like their, their big thing was like, Evan, like we have a pretty big platform. We love what you're saying. We love what you're doing. We love your community involvement. We want to help, but more importantly, we just want to give you a megaphone so that your own voice carries, you know, carries a little bit further. And, and so that was really cool. And I was so on board with it. And then I, and, and all the stuff we were doing was really, was just awesome promoting race walking. And then all of a sudden I, I see a tweet after, uh, after the races, I'm, I'm waiting in doping control. And I see that craft dinners donated 35,059 boxes, um, you know, relative to my three hour, 50 minute and 59 second time, uh, to the Richmond food bank. 
And it was just the most amazing thing to think, to be like, man, me going out there and just walking in circles for four hours, uh, which is essentially what I do, um, <laughs> you know, could have, could have that kind of impact, could, could have that kind of benefit to my community back home, uh, was so amazing. And then we were going to, we have these special edition Evan Dunphy craft dinner boxes that we got made up. And, and I just sort of said, Hey, like, would you mind if I you know, sold these for, for kids for it? And they were like, absolutely. That's a great idea. And, and hell, hell will help. We'll, we'll match donations up to $10,000. So, you know, we sold 150 of these Evan Dunphy craft dinner boxes, which is something I'd never thought I'd say. We sold them out in like 30 hours and raised 14 grand for kids sport and just wow. mind, mind boggling to me. That is something that is a sentence that I can say, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it just goes to show a kind of, to me, how genuine and how authentic the partnership was, is that we both just wanted to help each other create value. I like the fact that before I ever lived in Canada, my only reference point to craft dinner was South Park. Uh, every time they mentioned it on <laughs> Terrence and Philip, uh, which was then I discovered a real thing, and then I had the real thing in Canada and, and and thoroughly enjoyed it. I'd like to know though, what's more prestigious, the Olympic bronze medal or the craft dinner medal that you have? Like, I mean, kind of the, <laughs> that, the craft that, dinner that medal. That gold medal cool. is highly sought after. Uh, yeah. You know, few and fewer people fewer people have them. So um, yeah. No, it's funny. I, one of the things I love the most is that, I, you know, people that want to continue to make fun of me and are kind of running out of ways to do it. Um, <laughs> one of the, one of the things that they tried to do was, was make fun of the whole, um, you know, craft dinner, rebranding it as ED and then like, Oh, ED, like the connotations of that. And, and just kind of rolling. <laughs> I just coming out and being like, yeah, dude, it's, uh, what are you talking about? Like, this is our, our next campaign is a floppy noodle campaign. Like it, it's rolling in perfectly to one another. Um, and, and, uh, so it's just, you know, that, that, that golden noodle is, has provided, um, a lot of commentary and a lot of, a lot of laughs for me on my end. The thing that I like too, you mentioned about sort of getting that initial contact and thinking, okay, is this a bit of a prank? I like it on your social media when you're sharing sort of these random messages you get. And the one that I love recently is you got a, an email apparently from uh, Mitchell Stark wanting to uh, do advertising in your Facebook. Of course, those unaware, Mitchell Stark, very famous in this country. His brother, Brandon, quite famous as well. So uh, did, you, did you take that offer, offer up? Evan, are you going to be having official Mitchell Stark advertising on your Facebook page soon? Oh, we are growing cricket like you wouldn't believe over here now. I, I'm, I'm staring at I'm staring at a game right now, a, a T20 match just outside my backyard. Like, yeah, it's it's taken off. Just the the it's the partnership that nobody knew they needed. Yeah, right, right. It, 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 I, I will completely admit. I admitted this during our coverage. Is that. Obviously, I am very aware who Mitchell Stark is, very aware who Brandon Stark is. It did not click to me that they were brothers until during the Olympics. I'm watching Brandon going, he looks a lot like Mitchell Stark. And it's like, wait, Stark, Stark. Hey, there you hey. go. So I've been out of the country for too long, Evan. I, I, I use that as an excuse. <laughs> well, I always find it funny when I'm watching, if I find myself in Australia watching cricket and they'll be talking about uh, you know, how great Mitchell Stark is and all this stuff. And they'll be like, Oh yeah. And his, his brother's a, a pretty good athlete as well. What, what do you, the guy's a Commonwealth games champion. Yeah. That that goes to show the level of interest that Australia has in athletics versus cricket. Like we, we love our athletics during the Olympics and the Commonwealth games. Outside of that, we don't realize it exists. Cricket. God, it's, it's, you know, breaking news when one of our players use sandpaper. Let's not get into that story, but uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Before we let you go, Evan, uh, just uh, one quick question we'd like to ask uh, all the medalists, at least who come on the show. Uh, do, do you have a special place for your medal? And uh, the second part of that that Ben always likes, have, have you used it to get anything free? I'm guessing craft dinner, you don't need to. Uh, but you can still <laughs> count that if that's the only free thing you've gotten from it. Uh, so eventually, eventually it'll, it'll find its way onto my onto my little bookshelf nook area that's becoming weirdly more of a shrine than anything else. But um, right now it basically hasn't left the kitchen table because uh, it's been going with me pretty much everywhere I go. I'm, I'll be seeing a friend or, or a group of people that, that want to see it. And so it's, it's been in my pocket a lot. Um, it's had a lot of hands touching it, which has been weird during the pandemic um, to have to like hand sanitize my metal uh, is something that has never occurred to me would be a thing I'd be doing, but uh, no, it's really cool. It's, it's gotten, it's, it's all scuffed up now. It's gotten a few dings in it and, and that's what I want to see. I, I, I think that's way more valuable than having a pristine, nice metal behind glass somewhere because um, you know, if this gets into the hands of, of one kid who, who decides holding that, holding the weight of that metal, but that's something that they want to do and aspire to when, when they're older, uh, then, you know, how I, it can, it can take all the scratches at once. Um, if that's kind of impact it can have. So, uh, I have been lucky enough to, uh, to get a few, few things out of it. We, um, uh, went out after a BC Lions football game. Um, I was, was going to mention that. I was paying attention to when all the BC athletes went there. I, I was living in BC and I was uh, before April and I was jealous because I didn't get to go to a Lions game and I wish I was still there to be able to go for the Olympic Lions game. That would have been the one to go to. It was, it was, and so we all, a bunch of us, about 15 of us went out uh, to a bar afterwards and we're all wearing our denim jackets and, and the rowers all have their medals on and, uh, and my, I got mine sitting in my pocket cause I can't be one of those people who wears it everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, and we were getting, you know, just shots coming to the table and, uh, and then, <laughs> then all of a sudden, three bottles of, of very, very expensive Dom showed up on our table. Um, <laughs> courtesy of some guys who had just made a lot of money. Um, wow. And, and we're just like, so we went up to thank them and, and just be like, what do you do? Like what impulse do you have that you just want to spend that kind of money just to see other people like happy and celebrate. So that was really cool. I've gotten another, they work got for the IOC. Is that what they did or? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, you know, if they just pulled together their per diems for a day and, and, yeah. and bought three bottles of Dom. <laughs> I love hearing stories like that. And yeah, I, 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 we, I'm the one who always asks if you get free stuff with it, but I mean, God, again, you've got the craft dinner thing. So I think that's kind of, uh, that's working out well. Evan, before we do let you go, uh, I mentioned social media a couple of times. People want to stay up to date, kind of what you, what you're up to and everything else. Enjoy all the fun posts. Where can they, where can they follow you on social media? It's just, yeah, at Evan Dunphy. Um, I'm pretty much just Twitter, Instagram. I, I have nothing valuable to say on TikTok. Uh, and, <laughs> and, 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 and Facebook's just too hard for me to open these days. So yeah, Instagram, Twitter, that's, that's where I'm usually ranting and yeah, Instagram's more of the donuts. Twitter's more of the rants about, um, corruption in the IOC or, or drug cheats or stuff like that. <laughs> Awesome. We'll follow both of them because we like uh, both the donuts and the drama. <laughs> uh, Evan, it's it's been great having you back on after five years. You know, we're hopeful that uh, at some point in the future we can have you back on again. Maybe uh, let's let's 
hope that this isn't uh, the final Olympic bronze medalist in the 50K race walk we're going to talk to. And that uh, some point down the road, we'll have you back on to talk about being well, well, the uh, the first return gold medalist. Well, I was going to say quickly, as an Australian, and clearly with a lot of sway with our Olympics here in the country in 11 years' time, I'll do what I can, Evan, to make sure that come 2032, <laughs> yeah. if it hasn't returned in L.A., that we will bring it back and somehow just keep the body going. It's 11 years away, but I'm sure you can do it. It's not that far. I'm- I mean, I, I'd, I'd be 42. Uh, you look at um, Garcia from Spain, who was in who was in the 50K in Tokyo. I'd have another 11 years ahead of me after that. So uh. yep. <laughs> easy, easy. I mean, uh, we, 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 we had an equestrian athlete at 62 win a silver and bronze in Tokyo. So, you, you know, you, you're just about halfway there to 62. You've got plenty of years left in you, Evan. Come on. Exactly. Yeah, all go. the way. Perfect. Yeah. Fuel <laughs> of champions. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure, pleasure to, to chat. And uh, yeah, I love it. And Mr. KD, A-E-D, uh, KD, <laughs> Two very famous initials there. You could be thinking of Kevin Durant yeah. or what ED stands for, which we won't remind people. Evan Dunphy's what it stands for. Exactly. That's legitimately exactly. When, when during the interview where he's saying ED, I'm like, ED, ED, I'm thinking for a second. Of course, me, I'm not going to have it my clicked mind yet, Colin, that. do you need an education? Do you need me to send I got you it a now. Link? I got it. When he said limp noodle, I got it. There it is. It took a little while. <laughs> yep. This isn't pegging all over again. I don't need to send you a. Uh, oh, no, no, no. But, <laughs> Please um, go. No, fun, fun chat. I mean, I yeah, as I said at the beginning, I, I enjoyed listening to the chat you did with Evan all those years ago and uh, glad to be invited this time. I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> thanks, Colin. He says having not invited you for like the last however many interviews. <laughs> <laughs> You've been invited. You You've just you're... been in bed. Yeah, you're hearing a lot of Ben's voice lately and not mine. But, of course, yeah, time difference. That's a thing. Uh, but, uh, I mean, we got plenty more to come. I, I don't even know where we're at right now. We, we're getting very close to Beijing, I'm assuming. We're a lot yeah. closer than when we started uh, uh, doing these interviews after Tokyo. Um, but uh, Beijing is going to be coming very soon. So enjoy the interviews for now because uh, in a couple months, we're going to be fighting all over again over Athlete of the Day and uh, – <laughs> cursing people all over again for throwing not breaking chairs. our curse, throwing chairs, um, whatever we can come up with. Uh, Beijing games coming. And then before you know it, we're going to be about 1,179 episodes by the time we get to uh, <laughs> Los Angeles and Paris. The Commonwealth no. Games to cover too next year. I, I don't know if we're going to go to the, we can do a couple episodes on Birmingham, you know, so. Pan Am. Pan Am well, games. I've, I've, we've never done a Pan Am, so why not? You junior know? Goodwill Games. I'm sure they're coming up very soon. <laughs> the the Junior Senior Middle Ground Youth Olympics. Um, <laughs> the the National State Championships of Taekwondo. Uh, you know, we're just we're branching oh. out. Hobart late night race walk heckling competitions. <laughs> the Burkina Faso break dancing qualifying tournament for Paris 2024. <laughs> hey, that's a big one. The KD eating contest. I mean, we should yes. be in on that, right? Hey, we should have brought that up. That should be a thing. Like, if you can't do the 50K in Paris, then bring in competitive eating. KD, we yeah. talked about that on the show before, so why not? Yeah, let's do it. We'll, we'll just do it on our own. Um, mm. There we go. You know what? If 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 nobody interv- interviews, uh, if none of our interviews end up meddling in Beijing, we will do an eating competition in our final oh, episode. Colin. Just, uh, yeah, all right, sure, why not? 
<laughs> I have a feeling Time that Jared this and remember it. <laughs> Jared can blow us away. I'm, I'm taking a guess at that. <laughs> yeah, Jared, Jared's Jared wins got that life. Yeah. quiet competitiveness. Uh, but yep. yeah, make sure to stay tuned for uh, all the stuff we have coming up. Um, athletes in every sport imaginable. I don't know where. We're going to have to do a count very soon to see how many sports we've crossed off and how many I'm more keep, left to I'm go. keeping up with it. Don't you worry. I'm on the Good. Board. Okay. I wasn't worried, but I'm, I'm glad. glad that you're well organized <laughs> here. Uh, make sure to uh, uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Instagram. I love the Instagram content that Ben puts out there. You can hear snippets of the interviews. If you may have just listened to this because you heard a snippet. We haven't dumped the interview. So um, thank you for listening to both uh, YouTube, whatever you can find for us. And uh, until next time, closing quote is... Go left. Turn your up